what we're seeing is something that is not really shown in any other wake models that are you're trying to capture those external wakes is that these external wakes are lasting for over 100 kilometers. Yeah, that's insane. It's waking the entire array. Just the southern array is waking the entire collection of arrays. Welcome to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Rosemary, what's first on our list this week? We're going to be talking about some wind turbines being designed in uh, Colorado um, with the university in collaboration with NREL. And they have palm tree inspired wind turbines to survive hurricane forces. And we've got a couple of fun interviews that I recorded while I was at the Texas Clean Power Conference a little while ago with Jessica O'Connor of ArcVera about a wake model that they've developed for offshore wind and Brian Hill of Buckman about some of their control system retrofits that they can do. And then we talk about GM. Yes, the GM in the United States makes all the automobiles. It's investing in multi-turbine technology. Interesting development. Uh, we're also going to talk about a consortium of energy producers in the United States that are putting together $6 billion to invest into someone to make them solar panels here. All right, Rosemary, palm tree wind turbines. I know this is going to go right to your design mm -hmm engineering instincts. So the University of Colorado, sorry, Colorado University, Boulder, which is a beautiful place. Got to get yeah. it right. Get it's it right. a very beautiful place. It has <laughs> yeah. a great, it's a great campus, by the way. Mm. Uh, they're doing some research there with NREL in the United States where they're looking at basically backward wind turbines. <laughs> what I mean backward wind turbines is the blades are in the back and the cells in the front. And instead of having three blades, they are using two blades. And the, the rationale behind this is it, in theory, makes them more hurricane resistant, tolerant to big wind gusts. Now, I, I don't understand that part of it, but it's, and Rosemary, this is where you can help us a little bit. Mm -hmm. So the blades are supposedly are lighter. They need to be, they can be more flexible because there's less chance they're going to run into the tower. Yes. In the reverse situation. Okay. Uh, but that's the claim to fame is that with the two-bladed system, with them pointing backwards, the wind turbine pointing backwards, that they could handle much higher wind speeds. And then uh, it would make them possible for places like Louisiana, Alabama, in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, and on the Atlantic, kind of North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida mm. regions, where there's some really strong winds during hurricane season. But uh, they've been doing, I think they've been working on this for about six years. And they call it the segmented ultralight morphing rotor, a two-bladed downwind rotor. Uh, that evidently has some really good performance. But Rosemary, is this something new? Is this something that we've already done in the past? Or is this some new technology? What is what is happening here? Oh, there, there's probably some new um, structural design um, methods or an analysis. That part is probably new, but downwind rotors, definitely not new. Two-bladed wind turbines, definitely not new. Um, <clears throat> And this is usually my answer to everything, you know, like nothing, nothing's new. Um, so in the 90s, you know, no one really knew what kind of wind turbine we would end up with. And people tried like everything. Um, and plenty of people tried downwind rotors and two-bladed wind turbines. Um, and 
there's a few there's a few advantages and there's a few disadvantages and back in the 90s the disadvantages seemed to pretty much outweigh the advantages so it's a question of whether now you'll get the the opposite where you find the advantages outweigh the disadvantages so yeah the main thing with the downwind rotor is when the wind blows it bends the blades away from the tower so you don't have to worry about your you know the deflection of the blade isn't really a constraint um but it's not people think that you know that's the only design constraint when you're designing a wind turbine blade but it's just one of of several so it needs to not be so flexible that it can hit the tower it also needs to be strong enough that it doesn't break under those loads um there's also buckling is a problem you know like um, when you crush an aluminium can then the you know once you get started the thin walls very easily just crumple and um, a wind turbine blade is also a thin walled structure so it can do the same thing um, and then the Ooh. final main design constraint is fatigue because wind turbine blades um, see a lot of small but very frequent loads like for example gravity loading every time you know the blade rotates to the uh, three o'clock position it bends one way and then when it gets around to the nine o'clock position it's bending the other way and you know wind turbine blade rotates millions of times in its lifetime and so those small ads loads sure. can add up like when you bend a paper clip repeatedly back and forth you know like one bend won't the force isn't enough to break it, but after 50 bends, it, it, it might be. Um, so, you know, a good wind turbine blade structural design balances all of those and you end up with, a, you know, a, it, the, it's not true that for a normal wind turbine blade, if you took away the design, the design constraint of deflection, you know, not hitting the tower, that you would then be able to reduce the weight by like 20% because, you know, they're optimizing everything together. Plus a normal wind turbine blade has plenty of ways that they can, you know, get around the tower striking problem. One of the most striking ones is if you ever see a wind turbine blade on a a wind turbine on a still day, you'll notice that the blades curve away from the tower. So they make them pre-bent. So they've got extra extra distance to go before they hit the tower. Um, They also, you know, make the blade stiffer by using carbon fiber. Um, Yeah, those are some of the, the things that they can do. So... Under normal circumstances, I would say like a wind turbine um, has been pretty well optimized um, for, well, not optimized maybe, but, you know, they're doing a pretty good job of making a a good design for the upwind design. Um, But maybe under this hurricane condition where there is such a big difference between the extreme loads and the regular loads, maybe maybe then it makes sense. But there are down um, disadvantages mm. as well from the downwind design. And the main one is that every time it passes the tower, so in the you know, six o'clock position of the blade, it's suddenly in a shadow. It doesn't right. see any wind, so it can snap back. And so I mentioned that fatigue loading is a problem for wind turbine blades. So you know, you're adding in this huge extra fatigue load um, where the blade violently often bends every time it passes the, the tower. So that's the, the main downside. Um, also, I'll just add one more yes. thing. A flexible blade has to be stiff enough to actually do what it needs to aerodynamically do. You know, if it bends so much out of the wind that it's, not, you know, can't right. act, act like a, a wing and <laughs> it's not make any yeah, you, you're yeah. defeating the purpose. So it, it'll be interesting to see if it makes sense for this hurricane condition. But Joel, having lived down in Houston, we're going to need some type of high wind resistant wind turbines in the Gulf of Mexico, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you looked at last year, over the last few years, you can see the 
presence of hurricanes getting greater and greater and greater in the Gulf. This year, the uh, NOAA has a forecast of 65% more uh, activity possible in, in the Gulf and uh, hurricane activity in general in the United States. So you're talking three to six possible major hurricanes, right? And that's going to be a non-starter in the Gulf uh, unless we can figure something else out to combat the uh, the weather that's happening, as we talk about on the on the podcast here, the you know extreme weather and climate change is going to continue to increase these events as it goes forward. So, I mean, I know I saw uh, I think it was Ming Ming Yang out of China just released a typhoon class uh, wind turbine to kind of combat the same thing. So, um, it's good that you know we've that NREL is working on this and some of the universities are working on it, and hopefully we see something into production mm. that we can. Trust in a hurricane here. Interesting that you mentioned Ming Yang because they're one of the um, companies who have actually manufactured downwind um, rotors with two blades on them in the past, and uh, I'm not I'm not sure why they moved away from it. But there are there are quite a few manufacturers who have you know made megawatt scale wind turbines in either or both of the two blade or or downwind. So it'll be interesting to see if Ming Yang are reviving their their downwind two-blade um, concept. I couldn't find a lot of information on it last time I was um, researching it. But, yeah, I think uh, it's definitely a matter of just, um, you know, finding the, the right place for the, the, the technology. And, it, yeah, if we, you know, in the 90s when people were mostly looking into this in the early 2000s, it was much more about finding the really good, easy wind sites to develop and, now I think, you know, we're trying to put wind turbines everywhere. And so, yeah, somewhere that has um, hurricanes on occasion would be, you know, a place that normal wind turbine design just might not suit. So can you afford to be not as efficient in hurricane-prone areas with the design just so you can tolerate the once or twice or three times a year massive winds? Is is that the compromise then? Yeah, and I think it would be like structurally efficient would be the... Um, the, the trade-off, you, you know, like you should be able to make it as aerodynamically right. yeah. efficient um, or very, very close. Um, but you're probably going to need definitely to pay more attention to your design. You know, really flexible structure, a structure that's supposed to deflect a lot is, is hard. I mean, that's one of the problems with just regular wind turbine blades deflect, you know, 10% of their length. And that's that's massive for, you know, yes. any structural engineers yeah. that aren't working with wind turbine blades, they'll, they'll be shocked <laughs> find out that that's how much these things are moving and that's just <laughs> you know what you expect and you see that all the time when people take a technology from say the aero industry and try and put it in a wind turbine blade it's like oh yeah but you know <laughs> these things these things move you know this is not a rigid structure that you're installing your your um, product <laughs> into so yeah it's uh it's a challenge I think, maybe it's worth it i think it's a word just a matter of time before we see the effect of what a hurricane can do to the current technology because if you look at the gulf coast in texas uh just inland in corpus christi south padre uh, all along mustang island there's turbines that are within a mile of the beach Ooh. so it's it's just like you know we had last summer there was a bunch of hurricanes that came into st charles louisiana in the last two years they, they have just gotten pounded i feel really bad for those people um but if some of those uh, hurricanes turn uh west down the coast there's a whole bunch of wind farms right in in line with uh, what could be catastrophic damage from a hurricane just waiting until one hits there wow wow well we've seen the effect of tornadoes on wind turbines where the the blades just look, look like they have wilted and you see those pictures pop up on facebook yeah. and all the social media sites pretty frequently but I haven't seen anything related to a hurricane damage yet. So, but we're going. We're going to. We obviously need to get out to the Gulf of yep. Mexico. So, it's just a matter of time. 
Okay, we're going to do a quick commercial break. And when we come back, there's a couple of interviews that I recorded recently in Texas at the Clean Power Conference. Um, we've got Jessica O'Connor of ArcVera, and she tells us about a wake model that they have applied to some of the new offshore wind sites in um, New York. Very interesting uh, results that they have there. And also Brian Hill of Buckman, who do control systems for wind turbines, and they have some interesting technologies that are available, especially for retrofitting old wind turbines. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound, but Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet, and it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. We are recording live from the exhibition floor at Clean Power 22 in um, in San Antonio, Texas. So anyway, I have here Jessica O'Connor from Arcvera Renewables. Um, can you tell me a bit about what you guys are doing? Sure. So Arcvera really is on two sides of of the analysis where the resource meets the machine. And this is in wind, solar, and in battery storage. So on one side we have atmospheric scientists and they're doing the wind resource assessment from prospecting all the way through financeable uh, energy yields, uncertainty analyses. This includes a lot of different kinds of wake modeling. We do our own kind of mesoscale modeling in various kinds of resolutions and we do operational analyses and uh, repower analyses and then we also have an engineering team so the engineering team which i'm primarily on does a lot of the technical due, technical due diligence mm -hmm. and then um, technology diagnostics so this would be rcas root cause analyses end of warranty inspections uh, loads analyses uh, so putting those string gauges on and everything mm -hmm. and uh, but we also do power performance testing so that that is actually a really neat part of our business because it it connects our WERA analyses to our engineering capabilities so really it is where the resource meets the machine or the wind meets the wind turbine yeah okay so the reason um, why uh, your booth caught my eye I walked past and you have this really cool wake um, simulation yeah I think it's um, of some of those recently auctioned offshore wind sites right is in New York right. is that right yeah yeah the yeah. New York bite yeah and so they had um, like two no, three or four different um, parcels of ocean surface, I yes. guess you'd call Le it. You can't call it a land. Yeah. yeah. Um, near each other and that have, yeah, they've just been, there's, people have purchased the right through auction mm -hmm. to develop a project there. Um, yep. $4.37 billion. Yeah. So that's something we've talked a fair bit about on the <laughs> podcast because that's, that's great. It was crazy. It the crazy, amount yeah. of money that's, um, that's going to change hands there. And so you've done this cool wake simulation where you have one, I think there's a really prevailing wind direction um, in the, what is it, kind of like from the southwest? Southwest, from the yeah. southwest, yeah. And so there's one wind farm going to be there and then there's 
two, three in the, the wake of that, and you've done some, some modeling um, that shows there's like a significant, going to be a significant effect on the down, the downwind um, wind farms. So yeah, that's yeah, right. can you tell me about that, that model? And sure. So for, for background, we first used this model to test operational wind farms onshore to see this wind farm is being, it has just been built. This wind farm has been built for a long time, but they are waking each other and there is a significant amount of energy loss because of it. And the model that we're using, which is um, WARF WFP, so weather research forecasting with wind turbine parameterization. Okay, you Americans really love acronyms. I, I know. It's, when I lived here, I had to really uh, learn to speak like the language of acronyms. Cause and in <laughs> offshore wind, there's even more acronyms. So it's like speaking an alien language. Yeah. So with WARF, um, it's a mesoscale model, and it is all of the physics within the atmosphere, or most of the physics within the atmosphere, um, in a kind of CFD, computational fluid dynamics domain. And this is all, all of the atmospheric boundary layer. And what we're doing is using reanalysis data to represent the spatial wind resource. For the w, WFP, wind farm parameterization, we're putting in momentum sinks. So these are actuator disks within the model. Now I'm I'm just an engineer, so I'm speaking to that as as well as I can. I don't speak atmospheric scientist, but as far as I understand, they're putting actuator disks within the model to represent the wind turbines. So this is a momentum sink. Mm -hmm. So as the wind is hitting the momentum sink, energy is taken out of the wind. Mm. So we're, we run the model twice: one for ambient conditions and one with the momentum sinks in the turbine positions. And what you saw, which is a very beautiful, colorful array of colors, is the delta between those two models. And the New York bite really caught our attention because, well, first of all, all of the money that was spent for those lease areas is tremendous and a little bit daunting. But, but also, they're so close to each other and they're so large and they are all lined up in the prevailing wind direction. So what we did was we took the um, two southernmost arrays and we populated them 0.75 nautical miles north-south and one nautical mile east-west, a 15 megawatt theoretical wind turbine, 240 meter rotor diameter. So enormous, theoretical. But I'm uh, sure that that's what they're going to use by the time they, they install those. Right, yeah. they certainly seem to be planning to. Yeah. Um, they want to use the largest and the greatest. But what we're, what we're seeing is something that is not really shown in any other wake models that are, you're trying to capture those external wakes, is that these external wakes are lasting for over 100 kilometers. Yeah, that's insane. It's waking the entire array. Just the southern array is waking the entire collection of arrays. Yeah. So from... Um, the second array away from the most southern one. I don't want to name the arrays because um, we're not associated with the owners. But the the mid array, we found 13% energy reduction deficit just because of external wakes. So this is not even considering the internal wake effects that are going to also occur with these large rotors. Yeah. Uh, when we filled in the next array, we found 26.6% 
loss in this other external array. And granted, we were cherry picking the days and times. We did look at all the seasons, but we cherry picked the data so that it was all going in that primary wind direction. Mm. But it is the primary wind direction. So we, we expect to see something similar to that in the losses for external waves. Yeah, and the, um, the, the way that you visualized it in the little animation that I saw, you say how many meters per second deficit there is yes. in the downwind um, yes. wind farms. And it was you know usually one or two meters per second deficit and sometimes four meters per second, even like a really long way. Yeah, it was getting black. Downwind, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was really surprised because I know the rule of thumb is, you know, you put um, wind turbines six diameters apart and then you're supposed to have enough weight recombining that, you know, that everything's, right. you know, pretty, pretty good after that. But I mean, six diameters of a you know 250 meter um, wind turbine does not equal hundreds of kilometers. No, so, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I was really surprised at how long it persisted for. And honestly, we were too. And do you think that the people that have the companies that have you know won these auctions? Um, do you think that? That, I mean, they must have obviously done some modeling. You don't spend that much money and just on a whim. You, yeah, they're not, they're not dummies. Yeah, so yeah, so there, there, a lot of them are experienced in Europe and understand that there is an issue because of long distance wakes. Mm -hmm. And so, not knowing exactly how they were taking into account, I assume that they had some sort of deficit because of external wakes, but not really being able to model that it was probably just an educated guess. Mm -hmm. And so what we're able to do and what we showed at IPF a few weeks ago was something that they hadn't seen before. And there was a lot of concern. And of course, we want to validate and we want to have the discussion looking at operating offshore wind projects, get their operational data you know, obviously it needs to be more than one array mm -hmm. and see if what we're modeling in this in this uh, format is a correct mm. assumption or a co correct way to model it. Okay, so you said that this was based on your model that you use on onshore yes. wind farms and mm -hmm. uh, I assume you validated that onshore? Yeah, so we use that, there's a, a particular couple of projects, I think it was in Iowa, that uh, we had, our client was, I think the southernmost and it was for due diligence, there was, it was for an M&A. And they wanted us to evaluate what those external wakes were. And we did and found that the, the losses found in the operational data were within 15% of what we were modeling. Okay. So it was validated using operational data. And do you get the, the wake, does it persist a lot longer offshore than yes. onshore? And why is that? Stability. So on offshore, offshore the the atmosphere is stable most of the time. So you on, get less mixing. Yeah, it's not mixing from outside air coming into the wake. Right. Yeah. Yes, but onshore you have more mixing, um, unstable conditions um, during the day, but at night you do have those, or at least in this area, that those stable conditions where you have these long wakes mm. that are propagating. But offshore, it's it's a lot more prevalent. Yeah. Okay. So your next step will be to validate offshore. Um, Gosh, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the reasons why we pre we have been presenting this is we want 
developers to work with us yeah. to help us validate it yeah. so that we can support them in their next ventures for offshore wind or onshore wind too but yeah. offshore wind is such a big investment that yeah. we would hope that they want to do their due diligence and i mean so it's one thing in um new york where you know kind of everyone's developing at the same time and they're aware of what else is being right. sold yeah. but imagine if you had an offshore wind farm and then somebody built one uh, exactly. you know that you weren't expecting upwind from you then that would be quite quite shocking yeah well even if it was just 80 80 if it was as far as 80 kilometers to even have a five yeah. percent energy deficit because of yeah. somebody else's yeah makes, development makes a big deal yeah yeah okay well that's all the time we've got um to talk today but i'll be really interested to see how you go if you do um, manage to you know get a partner to develop with um yeah, yeah. To, to, to work with then i, I want to hear you <laughs> your results so. yeah thank you yeah I, I appreciate this this time i obviously love talking about this stuff so any opportunity it's great and i have with me here today brian hill he's from backman um and yeah brian can you tell us what what is uh what is backman doing what's sure. your history uh Bachman is a 53-year-old privately held company that uh, uh, is a key automation provider for the wind industry. Uh, the company started in automation for industrial uh, plastic manufacturing and was an early player in the wind business. Um, the first 17,000 GE wind turbines uh, have Bachman controls in them and over 120,000 wind turbines in the world have Bachman automation. Yeah, right. That's a big, big base that you've got to start with. So um, what, are you, what are you working on now? What are your exciting, exciting things that you're, you're working on? Well, um, I'm the general manager for North America for Bachman, and uh, Bachman has two primary uh, customer bases. One are the OEMs providing automation to uh, manufacturers of wind turbines and in my market in in North America we're focused on operating wind turbines and trying to extend the life have turbines uh, achieve their planned life um, that when they were manufactured and so we're helping bring some of the older wind turbines into the 21st century and and um, uh, Power quality and uh, cybersecurity are all oh. important facets of, of what we're helping bring these older turbines. When that was a not not a focus when some of these were manufactured, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And um, so originally turbines were when I first got involved in wind. You know, they said it would be a, a 25 to 30 year turbine life, and people were hoping. You know, if they took good care of them, they'd live to be 40 years. And what we're seeing is these turbines that were from that vintage need need some extra help in order to uh, keep spinning. And in in my mind too, um, a lot, some of these older turbines are being repowered and and being eliminated. Well, if you're concerned about the environment, and you know, is that a really? If would it be better to keep those running and improve them, and rather than replacing them and all that uh, effort and scrap and environmental you know impact uh, yeah. gets avoided so uh, okay 
So the reason why I, uh, I thought that uh, you're an interesting company to, to talk to on the podcast was about your um, control system retrofit. Right. Um, okay. So can you tell me a bit about what that is and in what circumstances that would be appealing? Sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, our, our controls retrofit solutions are a, a primary focus for us. Um, reason being is uh, uh, our first entree into the market were... Uh, turbines that where the OEM disappeared. They went out of business. Uh, Clipper turbines, um, Zahn turbines are older uh, turbines and they've got a big fleet of, of turbines out there that no longer were being supported. And we had owners coming to us uh, asking for help and trying to like, what do we do now? We, we have down turbines, we have controls, we, we have spare parts that uh, you know we can't get. And so we were responding to that market need. Um, and are these and, turbines that your control systems were already in? Or? No, the, no. So what what we would do is completely uh, rip out the old controls and put in our, our, our Bachman system, a, a modern uh, compartmental uh, type control system. Um, and so that now, and we would also replace the operating software on the turbine too. So. So the uh, original OEM software was no longer in there. And um, we created a template based on IEC standards for operating a wind turbine. Um, so we can pretty much uh, do a retrofit for any, any wind turbine. Um, the caveat to that is uh, there has to be enough of them because there's a fair amount of engineering uh, effort to figure out all the IO and, and uh, controls requirements for an individual turbine. So it, it can't be one of those uh, orphan turbines where there's only two in the country and uh, mm -hmm. so. Yeah, okay. Um, and one of the reasons why this, um, you know, caught my attention was because in in Australia, I know I just moved back there recently and I had mm -hmm. only been working in, in Europe and um, North America before and they're doing things a bit differently in the wind industry in Australia. Most of the developers, uh, you know, it's like a, f a financial company, a bank or something, and they're not operating the wind farm themselves. They own it and they're, they've got a service agreement, the OEM right. typically. Mm -hmm. And um, through my consulting company, Padlet Consulting, uh, I'm often in there trying to, you know, resolve issues that um, they, they might have, um, usually with, um, you know, the blade quality, um, but it can also be operational stuff. Right. And I've noticed that the owner of the wind turbine just has absolutely no no capability to really know what's going on in their, their wind turbine. I can't even, you know, I'll recommend, you know, putting a sensor in to, to monitor, a, you know, a, a fault and, and see how it's progressing. And the OEM with the service contract it just, just says no. And I, I thought that was crazy that, you know, they would, they would own a wind turbine and not have the capability to to even install a monitoring system in there. Um, right. And I was talking to one of your colleagues yesterday and he mentioned that uh, that's something that you have actually helped help companies with. Right, yeah, one of the interesting things uh, in the in the wind space that I, someone told me many years ago, earlier on in my wind career, when you, and I was developing wind farms and, and looking at buying wind turbines is According to the OEMs, you never really own a wind turbine. You, you, we let you use our wind turbine, and it's a it's a weird, uh, you know, dichotomy or whatever the uh, correct 
way to describe it, but um, it, we have a lot of customers that are frustrated with that scenario, and they, they want the control back in their hands. They paid, you know, huge money for these huge uh, assets and want, want to be able to control them and have uh, be able to make those changes you're talking about. So what our solution does, it, it's more of an open system, and uh, we we allow those types of things, extra sensors to be added, uh, extra solutions to be added on the back end of the, the uh, you know, control scheme. So, yeah. um, And does it, it does, always involve ripping out the whole, like all of the control hardware, or can you? Yeah, yeah there's variations of that. So uh, it kind of depends. Um, we have uh, SCADA solutions that, that can replace the OEM uh, uh, SCADA system that will allow uh, you know, similar thing, um, and it it allows that I/O and and the different um, extra components to be added on. So um, okay. again, it kind of puts the control back in the hands of the of the owners. Um, again, a lot of these, uh, what we hear from a lot of owner operators, they're very frustrated with that, you know, lack of control and yeah. And, uh, because there's a lot of interesting things, uh, developments happening in the operation of wind farms as a whole now. You know, like I, I, my background, part of my background is in aerodynamics, so I'm really interested in like wake steering and, right, right, and yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, so I guess that this would be a way that you could, you could get that capability in right, an existing yeah. wind farm. Is that so, right? Well, so there's, it, we can provide that with with one of our controlled retrofits. So, the. To be able to do that with um, an, an, one of the OEM's uh, operating system, you you would have to get their permission, mm. and that's the the beauty of our retrofits. Is again, it puts the control back in in your hands. So we we now have an open uh, you know parameters and and modification of, of the turbine is now in your your hands uh, with our retrofit mm. and. There's, I'm unaware of any OEMs that would allow you to, to make a make a major change uh, like that in, in wake steering, unless they're buying it and then they're going to add their markup on it. Um, mm. And so we're we we just had a meeting earlier today with a um, a company that has a uh, a grant from the I think National uh, Science Foundation um, to actually try to implement wake steering and um, extreme seeking uh, you know modifications to the to the operation of the wind turbine and they were asking do you think there's any way you know we could do this with a, a turbine that's not one of the uh, one of the OEM you know standard mm. operating systems and I I can't think of any and that's um, so we're we're going to be talking to them about testing out their their algorithms on mm. on one of the turbines that we're retrofitting. So, okay, uh, it sounds like um, it's a big a big investment, right? You're not gonna you're not gonna change your whole control system just to do small small tweaks. I guess this is for, for major yeah, so, for major problems they want to solve. Well, um, so that one of the ones that we've uh, we've retrofitted our uh, Mitsubishi 1000A turbines, and not not trying to. Uh, cast shade on any of the, any of the OEMs. They're one that 
Mitsubishi has more or less pulled out of the U.S. market. Customers are complaining about support and lead time on, on getting replacement parts. And so those they're looking at turbines down. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, these modifications are, you know, kind of pay for themselves mm -hmm. because you're talking about availability of turbines and, and uh, yeah, I guess if you're more efficient operation. Months. Right. Uh, months of downtime yeah, and that's is exactly very expensive. What we're talking and yeah. and high cost for replacement of of the you know these older control modules. Yeah. So um, that, that's where some of the economies come in, and then the opportunity to more efficiently uh, run the turbine, having the access to um, those uh, wake steering and, and improvements. Mm -hmm. What what we try to do with our retrofits are uh, improve the um, the uh, wind wind curve, the basically the um, the cut-in speed and and the uh, level of operation on the on the wind curve, and uh, decrease the loads on the turbine because mm. one of the uh, one, one of the common things that uh, we've seen too is um, these various improvements from some of the OEMs are now creating extra stress on the turbines mm. and decreasing the, the long-term life of the, the turbine with uh, with loads. So we're trying to extend those lives with, with these improvements and improve the, the economics. So, yeah. Um, okay, well, I think that's all we've got time to talk about yeah. today, but um, it, it's really interesting. I wasn't aware that it was possible to yeah, replace the whole, whole control system. Right, so definitely, yeah. you know, where, where you've got wind turbine owners in a bit of a desperate situation and looks like there is there is right. something, yeah, something they can do about it. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, thanks so, so much for coming in and talking with us thank today. Thank you, I appreciate you taking the time. Lightning may be a force majeure, but lightning damage isn't. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage to your blades. Visit WeatherGuardWind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call. WeatherGuard is proud to be engineer-owned and operated in the USA. So the largest U.S. manufacturer of automobiles in the United States, General Motors, is now in, has investing into wind, shockingly, because it doesn't seem like something they're ready to do yet. But GM also has a, a, a venture part of their business, and the GM Venture Group has uh, invested in a $10 million round with wind-catching systems. And if everybody remembers seeing the wind catching system, it's that large grid of wind turbines on a basically a, a bunch of steel rails. It's about as tall as the Eiffel Tower. And there's multiple wind turbines installed on this sort of vertical grid. Uh, and they, they got other investors in it too. They have Ferd, North, Ener North Energy, and Half Fun. And, and they're trying to commercialize this massive wall of wind turbines by 2027. And GM's chief sustainability officer, Kristen, sorry, yeah, Kristen Siemens, uh, said, as GM continues to move forward towards an all-electric future, it's critical that we simultaneously drive the transition of the grid to low-carbon energy sources. So what GM is essentially saying is we're going to be building electric cars. We need to make more electricity. We'll invest in, in some electricity-generating 
ventures. This is a little bit unique. Uh, and I, I, I wonder if this is not the last time we're going to see something like this. Or, or guys, or do, do we think more companies outside of the normal wind energy spectrum are going to be investing and putting some money where their mouths are? I think yes. And yeah, I know I think so. based on the um, companies that get in touch with my consulting company, Pilot Consulting, we do due diligence into renewable energy technologies. And this is one that I get inquiries about a lot. Um, so I, I do see a lot of people. I mean, there's a lot of money that wants to go into clean tech. Um, and mm. they don't, you know, they might have big engineering team in house, but they don't have the, you know, the like industry specific knowledge to be able to say, you know, are the, this company we're thinking of investing in, are that, do they claim stack up? You know, is it accurate? Are they representing their, um, competitors accurately? Is this thing they claim is a huge innovation? Is it really, uh, the, you know, claims that they're making about improved efficiency, reduced cost, uh, you know, are they plausible and, um, yeah, so I, I'm definitely seeing a lot of a lot of companies, maybe re in related industries, that want to get into renewables, and and I think that's great because we we do need more investment in these technologies, especially big bold ones like wind catching. Um, maybe not wind catching specifically, but you know, <laughs> companies that are trying to do things differently. I I think there's a big place for that, and I don't think big innovations in wind energy are going to come from, you know, the major manufacturers making incremental changes. Well, one of the concepts here from their uh, some of their press releases is GM is actually going to give lend some project management expertise to them as well. So they're actually getting into the development process with them, whereas some of the other larger monies coming into renewable energies are in the form of PPAs and some other things that will, of course, spur the energy, the industry along. But GM is actually saying, we want to go and be partners with these guys. We want to help them out. We want to lend some of our project management expertise to to further this technology. And I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, is it really helpful, though? I mean, my first instinct is, ooh, I'm not sure I want that. Uh, just because it's, uh, it's so difficult to jump industries. It's... It's nearly yeah. impossible for someone who's been working in automotive to then move into wind because they just think differently. They're they're not the same industry. They they work totally differently. Have different regulatory requirements. They have different engineering requirements. It just seems so difficult to do. I mean, the thought is great, obviously, and, and providing some maybe yeah. in procurement. I think that could really help. You know, buyers. I think <laughs> pretty much the same. No matter where you go. I think if you, you have someone that's yeah. Say someone is a you know a Six Sigma black belt. There uh, you go. Or or has a, a project management uh, specialty or something and that yeah. that can transfer from you know in technology. If you do technology development at GM, you can probably manage technology development for something else. Totally agree. Uh, I just I just like the idea that they're 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 not just saying here's some money, see what you can come up with. They're saying here's some money, let's stand next to you uh, on the podium here and, and try to drive this thing to the finish line. Yeah, yeah. It does it does them a lot of good to have someone as large as GM standing next to them. It should bring in more revenue, yeah. you, or not revenue, but more venture capital. It'll drive venture capital for sure. Yeah. Well, I think that some of the most uh, successful uh, VC uh, money injection into companies is when they have people also holding their hand instead of just angel investors that give a bunch of people money and say, see what you can come up with in five years. When you look at these different groups, uh, you know, like, say like Chevron technology ventures and stuff, a lot of times they'll They'll help them along and, and lend some expertise and, and whatever through the process. And those are the ones that you see to be a little bit more successful, I guess, in my mind. 
So we're interesting development on the solar front, and I know we don't talk about solar all the time, but I thought this was a, a new novel piece in the solar industry where a number of companies are creating a consortium to support a domestic solar manufacturing effort. So there's uh, several companies, AES, Clearway Energy Group, Cypress Creek Renewables, and D.E. Shaw Renewable Investments are creating a consortium to purchase somewhere between six and seven gigawatts of crystalline silicon solar modules annually. So that's a decent number of, of solar panels. And it's called the U.S. Solar Buyer Consortium. And the whole intent is to support domestic solar chain uh, expansion and to drive the sol American solar industry. And they've, as part of this uh, start of this process, they've launched an RFP, a request for proposal, to find qualified manufacturers in the states who can form a longer-term partnership. So they want to take some of the smaller solar manufacturers, because there are no real large solar manufacturers in the U.S., and they want to see if they can expand capacity and create an, a, a local American solar manufacturing base. That is really unique, uh, and because we don't have a lot of solar manufacturing in the United States. Uh, recent numbers from 2020 said there's about 230,000 people involved in the solar industry from start to finish, from making solar panels to installing them on homes and buildings. But roughly 13% of those were actually in the manufacturing sector. So about 30,000 jobs were in actual solar panel manufacturing at some stage, which is relatively small, right? A Tesla has, what, three times that number of employees easily making cars? So this is a, a different way of thinking about the problem. And, and it's, it's basically taking it out of the federal government and state government's hands and putting it into private industry. Now, my question is to both of you is, does this same sort of uh, event or consortium form in the wind industry? Because there really are not big long-term players in the U.S. in terms of wind OEMs. GE, which was based in the United States, they moved their headquarters to Paris, France. So Vestas, Nordex, GE, uh, Suslon, what are the other ones, all the Chinese manufacturers, they're not in the States. They're not based in the States. We really don't have a, a long-term U.S. wind manufacturer. Does this happen on the wind front? I mean, I, I think the offshore uh, push could drive some of that. And some of the reason being is a lot of those components are so large that they need to be built keyside. So it's uh, it kind of kickstarts the idea of a little bit more um, local manufacturing or, or U.S.-based manufacturing. Uh, the The idea to me, though, is... Oh, man, I, I hope. <laughs> I really do hope because to me, this is like uh, well, last week we talked about the DPA uh, Act, the Defense Production Act from Biden, yeah. putting $545 million into renewable energy and whatnot. This the solar group putting together comes up, it's a private industry equivalent, right. basically, right. but 10 times the investment. Yes. Right. So if the private <laughs> industry can come up with 10 times the investment for, for solar, man, what, what a great thing for, for wind. Um, you know, we do have some here. We do build some blades in the United sure, States, yes. uh, but quite a quite a bit of that is right across the border in, in Mexico. And I know there is some blade manufacturing for some of the East Coast wind going on up in Canada. Right. Um, but I do know there's, there's a couple little things kicking off on the East Coast uh, to jumpstart it. But um, I, I'd have to push it over to uh, Rosemary. What do you think about uh, the United States 
coming up with six billion dollars to inject into the to wind manufacturing. <laughs> it's interesting. I because we don't have manufacturing of of a lot of stuff in Australia, um, and we used to have there was one. I think there was a Vestas factory here, and it closed because the investment environment was so um, dire. That was in early 2000s I think that that happened so I have been interested the whole time that I was working at LM Wind Power I was you know every time I would go around to the different factories I'd be like you know so so why is there a factory here and um what is it that <laughs> what conditions do you need to get a, a factory um and so one of the ones I spent a lot of time at was Gas Bay in Canada actually I think that's probably my favorite <laughs> favorite factory I went to it's so beautiful there and really really nice um yeah people and that was a local guy who had you know left the area to go to university and you know just really wanted to get some manufacturing in his area it's an area that is you know mostly defined by seasonal work otherwise and so you know they really wanted the jobs and so he he pushed and lobbied and government and and that sort of thing and generally the conditions that you need is um one like some sort of like big nearby demand to service and two, the government does, you know, often the local government does sweeten the deal. You know, they'll give the land, uh, make the land available for the factory for free or, you know, some, something else along those lines. Um, and I think, you know, something that's in the favour of local manufacturing everywhere is that wind turbines are getting huge, like really, really huge. Um, shipping, uh, the you know, supply chains and logistics have been problematic for everything. Yeah. I think yep. that there's a lot of headaches to be solved by manufacturing locally. I think that's going to help a lot. And, yeah, a bit of government support, um, especially like you build a wind turbine factory, you don't want to use it for a year and then close it down, you know, so you want that certainty that there's st- you're still going to be making a product that people want in five years, maybe, you know, 10 years would be nice. I think that those conditions right. yeah. combined is what's needed. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Winnergy podcast. Thanks for listening and make sure to follow Rosemary's YouTube channel where there's always great new content. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy podcast.